This is Skip Stewart, and this is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. Once again, I'm Skip Stewart, the Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and Chief Quality Officer for the Baptist System. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so excited because I get to have a very dear friend, Peter Shine, and Peter's going to be talking about the second edition of Humble Leadership. And so, Peter, for those that have not listened to past uh, episodes with you and Ed, or uh, maybe never even read the first book, tell us a little bit about yourself and why a second edition of Humble Leadership. Great. Well, thanks. It's great to see you guys again. And it's it's I'm thrilled to be able to reach your audience and talk a little bit more about this stuff that's very important to us. Um, so uh, the you know, the, the background for Ed and me is that we started working together about six years ago. Uh, and um, part of it was that uh, we both felt like we had some things that we wanted to say that we had sort of observed from my father's perch and, you know, 50 years of organization behavior uh, scholarship and my perch of 30 years of um, function and dysfunction within companies in Silicon Valley. So we saw some things that we thought weren't one-offs. They were trends, you know, good and bad. And it just sort of formed into some thinking around this idea of humble leadership. Uh, And humble leadership drew... Uh, largely from some of Ed's work uh, that started with a book called Helping and became a book called Humble Inquiry and also a sort of a a companion volume called Humble Consulting. And Humble Leadership was the sort of the natural progression from that. Um, We published the first one in 2018. Uh, It won an award, which was was always nice. Um, uh, And it it, you know, the minute we sort of got the printed copy, we started flipping through and finding imperfections. So, <laughs> so you know, the, the second edition was probably a foregone conclusion a month after the first edition. And anybody who's written um, textbooks or, or, or scholarly treatises knows how that is. You're never really done. Uh, it's like, as we say, it's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. You, you're, ne- as you're never complete. You just keep doing it. And um, but the other thing about the second edition of Humble Leadership is there were things that um, toward the ed- end of Ed's life, we knew we wanted to get into this, I think. So Ed passed away in January. We finished working on this right before Christmas. So um, there was a lot of the sort of the last things that Ed really wanted to get in to a general book about it. And I was, you know, people have asked me, what's, what is this book? What, how would you, is it a book about leadership? Is it, well, it's a book about leadership values. It's, you know, there are lots of ways that you can write, you know, 12 step programs about leadership or very programmatic, um, you know, concepts and, and themes. This is really more a set of values that 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 we have been professing in in a bunch of these books and kind of this became an, an assimilation of a lot of it uh, in this in the second edition. 
And one of the things that I think is most significant about the a difference is that the second edition has a chapter specifically on culture. And, um, you know, if, if Ed was famous for anything, it was books on organizational culture. And we wrote two together and um, he started studying this stuff in the early 80s before it was really being referred to as such. So the idea of sort of ethnographic or anthropological methods being applied against an organization was a kind of a new idea in the late 70s and early 80s. And um, Ed wrote both a big textbook that we did, we did the fifth edition a couple of years ago. Um, and he wrote an ethnography about Digital Equipment Corporation called Deck is Dead, Long Live Deck. And, um, and that was a reference to the fact that the culture of Deck still exists today. If you look at, you know, you poke around at Hewlett Packard, or, or I guess it's called HP Enterprise now, or you poke around at Oracle, uh, or maybe even Cisco, you're going to find people who still profess a lot of the DAC values. That's kind of how culture is. It's very sticky. Um, it, you know, organizational uh, boundaries move around quite a bit. Cultures are very sticky and, and stay with you. So we wanted to get our culture model into this book because ultimately the idea of, of leadership and culture and change those three things are inextricably bound together. You cannot um, sort of lead change without touching culture. You can't possibly, you know, watch culture change without some sort of leadership initiatives. So these things move together. And so in a book about leadership and about leadership values, such as humble leadership, we felt like we really needed to include the culture model just to get people thinking in some of those terms. So that kind of gives you the overview. We, we put the relationship mapping exercises in the appendix. They were not in the first edition. They were there mm -hmm. in some of our other books, but the relationship mapping is very uh, descriptively um, illuminated in, in the appendix of this book. And we put some information about um, group dynamics because I think some of that group behavior things get often gets overlooked. And that was something that Ed was passionate about for 50 years. So I think it really meant something to him to put, put some of that um, thinking about how groups behave, which really was largely where he started as a social psychologist um, in, the, in the 50s at MIT. The first stuff that he started studying was how groups behave. And um, so much of what we think about in in lean or agile is sort of riffing off some of those original ideas of how do you manage group dysfunction and, and how do you get groups to perform better? So that's that's a long winded um, description of what's different about the new humble leadership versus the old humble leadership. Um, and, oh, then, you know, and we just wanted to make the stories, you know, refresh the stories a little bit because these books don't get read if they don't have some anecdotes and some and some stories. So absolutely. And I, I learned something new. I, I thought those mistakes were put in books strategically. So you so you got to write a second edition, you know, for 
to to sell more books, but but I learned yeah. something. And you know, you know, yeah, I, I'm getting uh, Peter for the for the future. Yeah. Once again, thank um, you so much for no, being I here. No, I think it's just that you, you know, you say we could have done better, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Any any surgery, you know, you guys never are satisfied with a perfect surgery. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at HF all. Jeff has never not had a perfect surgery. <laughs> you know. Well. You may two, think maybe. that, but he doesn't. That's the thing. He's <laughs> sure that there's something he could have done better. So. Sure. Um, you know, humble, humble inquiry. We are, we are big, huge fans here at Baptist. So much so that that it has become a a tool within our Baptist management system that we use, and and so many people have been trained. And um, but when it comes to humble leadership. You know, we talk about different levels of relationships. You know, you got your negative one, your one, two, and three, and and humble humble inquiry is all about developing those those level two, you know, level two relationships. And what what changed in the business world when I don't know I don't how many years ago when when it, everything was was top down, total hierarchy. Uh, almost exclusively level one type relationships, you know, thou shalt do this and don't ask any questions and, and just do it. What what happened in the culture? What happened in the society to to get us to realize that, you know, that's not. That's not working. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'll throw out one idea, and that is that, um, you know, organizations grow um because markets grow and demand grows and and if they don't they they fail and they they contract but um an organization that's been around for many years has gone through all sorts of you know um uh high growth and moderate growth cycles and um one of the things in fact um there's the, the the chapter eight in this book is actually an allegory of organizational growth. And the thing that we realized that was interesting is that organizations in some respects go through um, a a kind of a reflection of the, the relationship model in the way that they start out as very, you know, a startup where people are working hard and they're spending all of their days together and and part of their nights together, um, end up having these very tight, what we would call maybe professionally intimate. We've we've often said that the, that there's level three relationships, which are intimate personal relationships, but we all know that there are intimate professional relationships as well. So. Um, we will we'll, we will now officially refer to those as sort of level 2.5. Mm-hmm. But the point being that as a startup, you 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 have that level of intense relationships. The kind of acid test being that you can kind of finish each other's sentences. You are you your, your minds are on the same place about what you're trying to do. Um, and then you you try to scale the business. And you recognize that those close, open and trusting relationships are very important. And so you grow gradually, recognizing that if you don't maintain those open and trusting relationships, you start getting into situations where people are intentionally hiding the ball. 
They're not telling what's really going on because it won't reflect well on them. Whereas the leader really needs to know the truth. The leader does not benefit by the truth being hidden from her or him. And so uh, you, you go through this growth phase where you're trying to hold on to those level two relationships, but it gets harder and harder. You expand internationally, you add new divisions, new functions, new, new products, and you start creating silos. And those silos and fiefdoms, in our view, are, are sort of another way of describing what happens when the level two relationships start becoming too transactional. You, you, you establish roles and you establish rules you know, of, of interaction between those roles or what you might think of in technical terms as an API, right? You create an API between how the, um, the division based in Spain is supposed to interact with the division in the UK, which is supposed to interact with the division in Memphis, which is supposed to interact with the division you know, or with headquarters. So you create these these sort of rules of engagement, these rules of interaction, and those, in in essence, kind of force people to start to become transactional. Um, and uh, that sort of transactional relationship and those silos, we think, contributes to um, organizations becoming sort of, you know, stagnant or or static or you know generalized stasis it's harder to innovate when everybody's just fulfilling their role and not breaking those apis so um and then it ends up being that you get into sort of down downright sort of contention and and you know internecine warfare between divisions and then you start getting abusive and and you know you know dominance and and exploitation um, both between divisions, but also within within a division. If you're, you know, if you're pressured to, you know, you know, grow your division without any new products to grow, uh, you may become very exploitative of the of the people on your teams who were either making the product or selling the product. So um, that sort of exploitation, unfortunately, it does happen as organizations uh, mature. So I think part of what I referred to earlier is Ed and I saw some things that we wanted to talk about was some of that, you know, not particularly positive maturation in what were very innovative and very interesting companies within Silicon Valley who started kind of behaving badly. And and that's when we sort of started to recognize maybe what we're really seeing is this um, this sort of reversion to level one and level minus one that just comes with uh, with companies maturing. Uh, so uh, I, th- I think it's that it's it's the balkanization, you know, that term, where, you know, where you create, you know, essentially different Balkan states that are all supposed to be part of the same organization, but they're not behaving that way. They're behaving as you know, silos and fiefdoms. And um, so uh, I think that's what's changed. Well, I don't know if it's changed. I'm not old enough to know that it's changed. 
but I'm old enough to know that there were negative outcomes um, based on some of that, you know, creation of, of silos that didn't work well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I worked at one. I worked at Sun Microsystems for a long time and times got hard and and uh, the just, you know, Sun was had a lot of really good people. A lot of them came from deck. And um, but they just didn't quite have the resilience needed to completely radically change their business. And it made more sense for them to become part of Oracle rather than really try to get to that level of change that would have been required to survive. Mm-hmm. Let me ask about the you know types of relationships. So we we talk about the four different kinds: the negative one, one, two, and three. Why is there not a zero? And I assume that this really is a spectrum from negative one all the way up to to three. Um, how do you do you view it as you know four distinct types, or is it more of a spectrum? Um, I think the spectrum comment is perfect. You're absolutely right. Um, I was asked at a conference recently, what about level one point five? And I'll come back to that, but it reflects people's sort of looking at this and saying, wow, this seems like a continuum, not, you know, four different distinct phases or or blocks. Um, Why no level zero? If it's zero, it's not a relationship. And so we're focused on Uh, um, the fact that there's a there's an exploitative relationship, which is a negative relationship. So. Just to make the math work, we call that minus one. Um, and uh, and then one is a transactional relationship and two is a personal relationship that's that that creates a level of openness and trust that allows people to um, be more you know communicative in order to innovate. As, essentially, if, if if there's any point of the difference between level one transactional and level two uh, personal, it's that that it's it's in innovation and creativity uh, generally, in our view, requires level two. Yeah, you just have to be willing to be open, trust each other, and think out of the box. And that's very that's very hard to do if everybody's keeping in their role. And saying, you know, I, I owe you this and you trust me to provide you this, but I don't trust you well enough to give you more and you don't trust me well enough to expect more. So we just stay in our roles. We you know, stick to our knitting. We stay in our lanes. Um, we have all these metaphors for that. So we know it's real. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like the continuum aspect of it because there are certain people that I will trust with some information and there's others that I'll trust more with, with more information, both maybe level on the spectrum of a level two relationship, but just to a different degree. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not, you know, I might tell HF where the bodies are buried, but not skip. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> what I, yeah, I know. I, I, I hear you on skip on that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, it's so well connected, right? You, yeah. you know, you know, you never know. It's like, uh, but the, the 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 thing that I was worried thinking about the other day about 1.5 is that I still feel like there's a bright line 
between transactional and personal. That um, if you if you believe you have a personal relationship with somebody, and then you start, you know, you end up in a you know at a cocktail party, and they start treating you transactionally. Do you have a 1.5 relationship with them, or is is that really still a level one relationship? Um, because you know the minute the minute somebody starts treating you with professional distance, when you thought you were pretty, you know, you were you were pretty open and trusting with that person, um, it it just strikes me that um, uh, you know it's sort of it's analogous to it's it's a lot. Um, it's it's a lot easier in some respects to be negative than to be positive, you know. Or, or or negativity is much more powerful than positivity. Transactional relationships, it, once you see it, it takes you a long time uh, to convince yourself that you have a, a open and trusting relationship with somebody if they start, you know putting up that wall of professional distance. It's like, yeah, it takes a while to recover. Um, so that that's that's my um, ambivalence about level 1.5, but I completely am with you that um, your degree of openness and trust is variable. And that's that's what that's the issue that we're playing with. Peter um, yeah. Peter, what's what what's your answer for leaders who push back and they say, okay, and, and we all know that that within organizations there has to be some hierarchy. And then mm-hmm. w- w- how do you answer the people who say, you know, if if I let them know too much about me, you know, they that's that may be me showing a sign of weakness or it 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 it, it they don't believe that that it makes things better. They feel like it could it could. Um, I don't know, tear down that that leader. You, yeah, you, do you know what I'm saying? I mean. I know exactly what you're saying, and I and um, I I guess the the first and easiest dodge because you're you're basically talking about the um, the white hot element in all of this is that we we all as leaders feel like um, how can it possibly be that I can have an open and trusting relationship with with everybody that's either a direct report or indirect report. Don't I need to withhold some information um, because, you know, that it, it might uh, either hurt them to know it or it might hurt me if they knew it. Um, I guess my my view is that um, if there was a way that we could do the research to sort of find 100 cases where where the leader did sort of, you know, become more open and trusting than they thought they should versus the leader who said no 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 my what i know is my power i'm not going to tell everybody everything um i just want to believe and i i do believe but i can't prove it that um the leaders who did show some vulnerability and did get people to say a little more are the ones that got into situations where the leader didn't know the answer, the leader needed to know the answer, the leader understood that the people around him or her collectively knew more than than he or she did, 
and drawing that out from that group was more valuable to the leader and to the organization than um, keeping the distance and um, you know withholding information because it seemed like that was a better expression of their command or their their power. Um, mm -hmm. I just think that we're in an we're in an age where um, it, you know with our sort of you know Gen Z and millennial kids they they read that they that's the first thing they notice if, so, if somebody is acting sort of you know transactionally or professionally distant their their radars are very good to that so what do you have to lose i i believe that the the um you know the the the, the false positive if you will of being too open and too trusting is far less dangerous to the organi organization than the false negative where you um, you don't stay, say stuff and big things, big ideas, you know, you know, big failure conditions, big risks don't get revealed because people knew it. And they said, well, you know, the 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 boss isn't telling us what's going on, so we're not going to tell him what's going on. Sure. And I just think younger people today are much more tapped in on that whole issue. Um, and they and they have they have maybe unrealistic expectations, but they do have higher expectations about what information is going to be shared, so that they feel like they can do their jobs fully. Um, so it's you know and it it's it's everybody's every leader has their own comfort level. Have but you? If I'm a coach, I'm telling people if you want to get uncomfortable, get uncomfortable sharing, not get uncomfortable with holding. Don't 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 find yourself wondering why you didn't say something sure. to somebody. Um, take take some chances and include people. Yeah, err on saying too much and saying too little. Yeah. Yeah. Skip, go ahead. I, uh, Skip, you had a question. Well, yeah, just one, one question. Uh, you know, one of the tools that we've used to try to make what I call the invisible visible is something that you and Ed introduced to me. Uh, it's went through multiple names. I refer to it as relationship mapping. And for those that want to see me and Peter talking more about it, they can go to our YouTube channel at Baptist Management System. Pretty simple to remember. Baptist Management System under the videos tab, and it's called relationship mapping. But just at a high level, you talk about it in the second edition of Humble Leadership. What's the purpose of relationship mapping? I think it's a great tool, and I, I make the statement it helps make the invisible visible. But speak to a little bit, uh, what's the purpose of the tool? Here? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I guess it starts with the premise that the, the org chart is a nice visualization, but we all know that org charts... Are, do not always reflect perfectly what the relationship and inf information flows in the organization are. There's a there's a there's a shadow. There's a there's a reflection of the org chart that is what relationship mapping is trying to get at. Is that you have lots of important relationships um, in in your daily work life and in your in your 
you know, workflows within, you know, Baptist overall or within a department or within a hospital in Mississippi. You, you, they, you've got all of these relationships that don't necessarily, you know, show up on an org chart, but you know are very powerful in, in, in your workflows. And um, the part of the two things, one is to get those things visual because we're all visual humans or visual people. We benefit by having a different view of something that we know inside is there, but if we can put it all down in a simple, uh, you know, simple schematic, then um, we're gonna we're gonna act differently because we had this view of it. Um, the other thing that it does is that it says now you take the relationship model, and in you know in your moments of truth and being very honest with yourself, apply the four layer four level theory about relationships onto those lines. And when I say lines, I mean the relationship mapping works where you put yourself in the middle and you draw circles around you for all of those people that are or are not on the org chart that are influencing the way you get your work done. So, and then you draw lines connecting all of these people to you, and then you assign a relationship level to those lines. So you say, okay, that's a level one relationship. That one, ooh, that's a level minus one relationship. That's like a level two and a half. That's a level two. And you you start having this very rich picture of ultimately what are the sort of the the, the tailwinds that help you get your job done and the headwinds that are represented by relationships on this relationship map that aren't where they ought to be. So if you can identify a level one relationship that, that's becoming an actual impediment to getting your work done, then what are you gonna do to improve that relationship? Um, what are you gonna do to build more openness and trust with that person? Because you know that you know next quarter, it's gonna be critical that I work more closely with that person or you, you you know, you, you or you may dis discover that there's a level two and a half that is becoming a distraction. You're you're almost too friendly with somebody and you you might recognize that you need to, you know, spend less time with that person. So or, or, so let, anyways, let's run all an sorts of scenarios. But yeah, so let's run an experiment right now. Let's say that my map shows that uh, one of the people I work with is Dr. Jake Lancaster. And it shows that we're just a level one. We're a transactional relationship. We're very nice. We're very polite, but we keep our professional distance. And I realized I'm, I, I work so much with Dr. Lancaster that that uh, we need more than a transactional relationship. Now, does that mean that I have to go running marathons and stuff with him on the weekend and that <laughs> I have to do all this training because if that's tennis, what it tennis, means, yeah, I, I want another way out. Tennis. You got to change his kids' diapers and yeah. <laughs> go, like, but, but in all shit. seriousness, does that mean we have to be best friends or what does it mean, uh, uh, Peter? Well, generally, I think it means that we have to do something 
together that's not that much different than than what we did in fourth grade. You know, we knew there was the kid, a kid that we weren't very good friends with or that we wanted to be better friends with. And we learn how to personize. We refer to this as personizing uh, in the book because or in a bunch of the books, because it's different than personalizing. We realize we have to just find ways to get close to the person. And usually it means it doesn't mean a meeting with an agenda. Usually it means unstructured relationship time. And it's very hard for people to say, oh, wait a second, I got 10 meetings today. I don't have time to go do unstructured relationship building with somebody that I, I know from my map I need to you know, establish more openness and trust with. Well, sorry, um, you need to go spend that unstructured relationship time. And maybe it's a walk. Maybe it's a sandwich, um, you know, and, and it's probably not going out and training for a marathon because that's that ends up being transactional. That's like Skip doesn't want to do it and Jake doesn't want him there because he's slow. And <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you got to find some, you know, ways that are that are that are easy to just kind of just just talk and 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 find ways to to be unstructured in the way you get to know each other better and um you know meals are good um and there there's a weird principle in all of this that sometimes it's better to create situations to do this personizing or personization when you're not looking at each other because if you're in a meeting and you're at a table and you're across from each other and you know there's all sorts of body language and, you know, there's there's the sort of, um, you know, informal hierarchy that that sort of that, you know, based on, you know, people's relative position in the room. And there's just all sorts of crap that we know is there. It's just part of life in, in an organization. But if you can get out of that and spend some time, um, you know, unstructured relationship building it's not you know it's we know how to do it and yet it's really hard and part of it is just that we over schedule our work lives and um uh somehow have come up with all sorts of justifications for over scheduling the structured work life and have never put in enough effort um to say let's let's structure in something that's that's unstructured relationship building I, I do love the story of, I don't know if this is still true, but, you know, back when Google was just becoming big, they weren't the monster they are today. Um, there was this rule that you, your four days a week was your job. And um, the fifth day was going out and helping teams do other stuff, just kind of finding other things to do to be productive. And that was a great way of sort of, um, getting out of the, the the routines of a project and thinking out of the box. Well, I'd say relationship building is the same way. It's unstructured, but if you know it's important with that particular person, um, do something, but, you know, maybe find new, some neutral ground. Go to a park. Or um, invite them over to the fire pit in the evening. Because there's something about looking at a fire and not looking at each other that allows you to be more open. Um, yeah. So I call it caveman TV. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. We love looking at fires. And again, it, and it brings the words out. <laughs> well, P- Peter, it's funny you say that, and I'll, I'll kind of bring us to a close. You know, I remember you and I spending uh, many hours walking uh, across the Stanford campus because it takes many hours to walk yeah, across big. that be- beautiful <laughs> campus. But to this day, I could almost repeat back some of the major topics that we talked about. Yeah. And we weren't looking at each other. We were walking forward and walking up and down the hills. And and, and, and so I, I think that's a really good point. Peter, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you as a friend. Uh, let me ask you this. One last question. If there's one takeaway that you would like the readers to take from the new second edition of Humble Leadership, what would that be? Well, um, Skip, I, and I'm I'm going to extend your time a little bit because we know each other so well. I do have one visual that I want that that isn't in the book, but I feel like it it might help sort of create some reason why it might be helpful to read this book. So the the visual is this, um, and you can you can take out a piece of paper and draw it, but you draw a two by two matrix, and um, in the bottom left hand corner, it's and this is all about risk. So the bottom left-hand corner, it's, it's you say known, and then in the next the next block up, you say unknown, and then uh, across the bottom, you go the same known and unknown. So this is getting at that issue of the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, and how do you manage risk in that environment of known known problems and unknown problems? And this applies to everything. It applies to technology. It applies certainly applies to uh, healthcare, And um, so you're always dealing with the risk of the known knowns and the unknown unknowns. So I wanted to put leader, humble leadership in this matrix. And so think of the lower left hand corner you do when you're, the risks are the known knowns. And there you're really dealing with the old environment of command and control. You're just trying to get um, uh, metrics that you understand uh, to be, you know, to get higher, higher values on those metrics you understand. Um, you're just trying to get better at what you know. That's that's dealing with the known knowns. If you're dealing with the unknown knowns, this is where I think we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, linear programming or scheduling or um, you, I mean, you know what things need to get done. You just don't necessarily know how they should be assembled or how they should be ordered. So you're dealing with the unknown knowns, how exactly thing those knowns should be put together is. And we've created all sorts of technology to deal with that. You know, I, I mentioned linear programming, any sort of scheduling algorithms are, are kind of dealing with that. Um, you know that there's these doctors and there's these patients, what, and they all have these procedures. What you don't know is what the right order is, is or how to assemble that function. I would argue that ChatGPT is this, right? Everybody gets so excited about how can ChatGPT do this amazing English paper. Well, what it's doing is just assembling stuff that you already knew. It's just doing it quicker and doing it in a way that... Um, that might be, you know, might be creative, but it also might be just sort of, 
you know, you know, creative spaghetti. <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 a risk. But again, it's it's sort of dealing with the unknown knowns. Um, and then there's the the um, known unknowns where really the problem is data. There's more information out there that we don't uh, we haven't really assimilated. We haven't planned for. So we're going to go out and do some analytics. We're going to go do some data mining. We're going to go find out more because we feel like in order to make, you know, to manage our risk the best, we need to know more and we need to um, sort of broaden the picture. And so again, data mining and, and big data are sort of the tools that we've applied to that. Um, I might also argue that Gemba is that, right? We know we know we go to Gemba because we want to find out more about what's going on. We're seeking out um, known unknowns. Um, so Gemba's, you know, is it a is a technical process, social process? Well, you know, we can have that debate. But either way, we sort of know there's something there. We just need to find out more. The point about humble leadership is that it's, it's really important for the unknown unknowns. And one of the metaphors is you want people to answer questions that you didn't even know to ask. Right? You didn't know you didn't know that. That was an unknown unknown. And when you start building these relationships of openness and trust and somebody says to you did you did you did it occur that maybe it's something you know there's all sorts of you know examples we can come up with where it was the 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 you know the the solution or the innovation or the better answer came because um somebody said something that you didn't even think was relevant or, um, you know, again, answering a question you didn't even know to ask. So to me, that's the, that's in this risk matrix. That's where you put on the leadership in that unknown unknowns category. And I guess we would argue that down the road, um, there's more, you know, with, you know, there's more coming that's unknown unknown. You know, there's another storm that we had no idea. Um, so it wasn't Manning's storm we knew about. It was a storm that we had no idea was coming. And um, we need to have those resilient, open and trusting bonds in order to deal with with those unknown unknowns. Really so that's, good, that's my pitch for humble leader. Really, oh, yeah. really, like really, really, really good. And I'll end it with this. I always love Ed's comment to me. He made it at least once a week. That life is a series of conversations and everything happens through conversations and relationships. And Peter, I'm just so thankful we have a awesome relationship. I appreciate your friendship. And my friend, thank you so much for coming on uh, uh, Connecting the Dots podcast. And just on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate you. And my pleasure to be here. Someday we'll just do this without talking about one of our books or something. We're just going <laughs> to we're just going to have a conversation and see where it goes. Yeah, <laughs> Fantastic. Cool. Fantastic. All right. All right. Take care.